You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, an LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and an LLS volunteer. I want to thank all of you who are listening for joining us. Today we'll be joined by Dr. Sergio Giralt, who is the Melvin Berlin Family Chair in Myeloma Research, Professor of Medicine at Weill Cornell Medical College, and Chief Attending of the Adult BMT Service at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Uh, Sergio, thanks for joining us. Oh, Ken, thank you, and thank you to the Leukemia Lymphoma Society for putting out this such important information. So I want to want to ask you from the perspective, I am a uh, community practitioner, and so I'm not doing CAR-T, but I'm, as we're talking about toxicities today, if you could put in a broader framework, not just how common are they, but how many patients get really, really, really sick, how many get moderately sick, how many get, how many patients sail through, mm. I'd love to get your perspective. So Ken, you know, today we have two commercially available products, Axicel and Ticicel, which have uh, a common indication, which is diffused large B-cell lymphoma in adults. And, you know, Kimraya, or the Ticicel product, is indicated for refractory ALL in children, or in up to patients up to the age of 25 years of age. The products both target CD19. They have, in general, a common spectrum of toxicities, although the incidence and frequency of severe toxicities are different. It's, um, I think as, you know, for a community physician, you'd have to say, well, you know, what's the spectrum of toxicity? So first, there's the issue of referral, the issue of getting collection, and stem cell, the lymphocyte collection is basically, it's the catheter and send the cells to manufacture. For the community oncologist, the other part is, so what do I do with my patient as the cells are being produced, right? Mm -hmm. Which generates a lot of anxiety. These patients, particularly the patients with lymphoma, have lymphoma that's growing. So this is important to communicate with the CAR T-cell center. What do we think is the best treatment for this patient? Because not only do we want the lymphoma to stay at bay, but we don't want to expose the patient to such toxicity that will make the CAR T-cell infusion impossible later on. Once the CAR T-cells are infused, these patients are in the CAR T-center be it a transplant center, be it an immune effector center. Everybody will get the cytopenias associated with the lymphodepleting chemotherapy, which is usually a combination of fludarabine and cyclophosphamide. So everybody's counts will drop, they may get neutropenic fevers, they will require transfusions. These are, for large transplant centers and CAR T-cell centers, these are common toxicities that are easily managed. Some of them can be serious and life-threatening, but that is really very, very, very rare. To the point that many of these patients, as opposed to the autologous transplant patients, don't routinely get antibiotic prophylaxis, they don't routinely get antifungal prophylaxis, they don't get antiviral prophylaxis. When the counts start recovering, or before the counts start recovering, with AxiCell, within 24, 48 hours, we do see that half of the patients have some degree of what we call the cytokine release syndrome. Usually grade two, a little bit of fever, whatever or not. Occasionally the fever gets higher and they require the IL-6 blocker, tocilizumab. Mm -hmm. 
a third of the patients will get some degree of neurotoxicity. Usually, they become a little bit more obtundent or lethargic. They have, we now do routinely, and this is why CAR T-cell therapy has to be given in specialized centers. The nursing staff is trained in monitoring these patients and asking you know, those questions to be able to assess neurotoxicity. And as soon as there's some deterioration of neurologic function, these patients starts on steroids. Late toxicities, which is what is seen by the community oncologists, are really very rare. But as we do more and more treatments, I mean, as I tell one of my community oncologists, look, if, a, if there's a toxicity that's only 1% of the patients, you're more likely to see it than I am, yeah. right? Yeah. So we have to be aware that some, the same way with that we figured out that patients who underwent an autologous transplant have a high risk of developing hypothyroidism, that they have bone health issues. So those are the things that we need to partner with our community physician and say, look, what are the late things? How are we going to make these people who we save from one very bad disease? How can we help them continue to age in a more healthy fashion? So let me ask you about the the two sides of the spectrum, uh, because firstly, thank you. That's such a clear kind of uh, explanation of toxicity. What's mortality now from CAR-T and vice versa? How many patients really sail through where it's really, they, they don't have a problem? So based on the experience we have, and these are, remember that patients have been treated now are patients who are refractory and relapse. So these are heavily pretreated patients. Mortality rates is less than 3%. You have to contrast that with autologous transplant where the mortality rate is less than 1%, but it's still relatively low. And, and, and aloe is what these days? Aloe is about 10%, 10 to 12%. So particularly with Tysa cell, the proportion of patients that sail through it, particularly patients that have low burden disease, is actually probably 30 to 40%. Mm -hmm. This is, I mean, low burden disease patients are patients that we routinely are now doing as outpatient because the risk of CRS and severe neurotoxicity is relatively low. Even AxiCell, if patients have low tumor burden, these patients can go out without any serious toxicity. Now. There is the practice is changing. Many of us are now starting steroids earlier in the course of CAR T cell therapy. Uh, it was presented in ASCO this year that you can give steroids as soon as people have grade one toxicity and you don't lose the response rate. We don't know what the duration of response is going to be, but I think you'll see more and more that we will be more amenable to give steroids early on, which will definitely mitigate toxicities for all products. And it doesn't seem to be reducing efficacy. So let's t talk about the two major toxicities in a little bit more detail. Let's talk about neurotoxicity first, perhaps thinking about a patient, but what typically are you seeing? So I'll just use an example of a patient that, you know, when I was last on service, this is a very loquacious 66-year-old, very communicative, would speak Spanish and English to me. You know, it was one where you say, write the sentence, and she would write almost like the great American. We say, no, just write five words because, mm -hmm. you know, you're going to do this every day. <laughs> Within 24 hours of the infusion, she started having her fever, but she, oh, this is great. I mean, I'm seeing my cells are active. They're doing their stuff. Within 48 hours, she was definitely confused and at a point very combative she didn't want when you tried to ask her the question she was screaming and shouting and at that moment we started steroids and you know high dose steroids can also cause mood disorders and so there was this challenge of how much is 
she was much more alert, but she was still very, we'd say, agitated. Within 48 hours of starting steroids, however, she was relatively back to baseline. And her main complaint was, obviously, she wasn't sleeping because of the steroid side mm-hmm. effects. So I would say on the other spectrum, we've had patients who become totally obtunded, unresponses and obtunded that we've actually had to take to the ICU and had to actually provide intubation to protect the airway. Again, within 24 to 48 hours of starting steroids, you know, wide awake, able to be extubated. Most patients, it's basically, they're a little bit more confused. The scan scores, which is what we, that, you know, mini mental status exam that we use, they start at 10, they go down to eight. Their writing becomes much more scribbly, but it, you know, over a period of five to seven days, it returns to normal without the need of steroids. What's the mechanism? If I knew that, (laughs) there is a lot of, uh, there is an animal primate model now. So it is felt that the CAR T cells are attacking the monocytes or are stimulating the monocytes in the, are near the blood brain barrier. And those monocytes are producing a variety of cytokines, amongst them interferon gamma, TNF, IL-6. And it's the inflammation that's produced locally by these monocytoid cells, stimulated by the CAR T cells, that produce a cytokine release syndrome locally that translates into neural deficiencies. In a sense, it it is a cytokine release syndrome. It's just... It's a more localized cytokine release syndrome based and it's not necessarily directly related to the CAR T cells. It is the effect the CAR T cells have on other cells that are in an environment. So before we go on to CRS, let me just ask you from the neurologist point of view, anything that we that was learned from this CAR T experience to sort of inform other neurologic what we know about other neurologic diseases that, that you've heard of? <laughs> That's a very interesting question. I think what we're understanding is is that what we call the blood-brain barrier and what we call the stroma where the brain lives is much more complex and it's not just supportive tissue. This is actually a very immune active place. I mean, so immune active that you give these CAR T cells and these cells start doing stuff that can make, you know, the brain almost shut down in many cases that, you know, in its worst consequences is produces, you know, severe cerebral and fatal uh, cerebral edema. Mm-hmm. I think that we can say, you know, that's basically what, how can, one of the interesting things and we're looking more and more into it is that even patients who have, you would think an older patient who has severe neurotoxicity will have neurologic sequela that will be easily seen. And we're not seeing that. We all... You'll hear your patients talk about chemo brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all my patients talk about chemo brain. There doesn't seem to be a late cognitive sequela in patients who receive CAR T cell therapy. We have a program at Memorial where we're going to be focusing on older patients, more than 65, because we think these are the patients. If, if there is really a late neurocognitive sequela, these are the patients we're going to see it. Yeah, yeah. And, and actually those longitudinal studies, I think, will help all of us. Let's talk a little bit more about cytokine release syndrome. And you talked a little bit about the incidence of it. Same question, what's the mechanism? So cytokine release, I think we understand much more, right? So this is, 
you have a T cell that's proliferating, it's with a proliferation produced stimulation of interleukins, they produce interleukin 6, they produce TNF, they produce interferon gamma, and all these cytokines have consequences. The most common one is fever. Interleukin 6 is the big driver of fever and fatigue and Castleman's disease, for example. Mm-hmm. So as the T cells ex- proliferate and expand, I mean, so cytokine release that we see after CAR T cell is direct reflection of T cell expansion. So if your T cells don't expand, you're not going to get cytokine release. So in a certain sense, and patients are, well, if I don't get cytokine release, does that mean my T cells don't are not expanding? No, there are patients who have no cytokine release and those T cells are expanding well. They just happen to be ones where their cytokines are not producing the symptoms that we traditionally relate to cytokine release. But most patients will have some degree of cytokine release, about 40 to 50%. It might be just tachycardia, it might be a fever, less than, you know, 30% of the patients will have cytokine release to a point that we need to give them tocilizumab. For the patients that are treated as an outpatient, which is yeah. a very exciting concept, yeah. but how many need to be admitted for cytokine release or neurotoxicity? So at this time, it's early days in using this as an outpatient strategy. I think we all have a, a very low threshold to admit these patients. So half of the patients are necessary. And remember, you gave them fludarabine cyclophosphamide, so many of them are neutropenic. So if they develop a fever, you're going to admit them for sure. neutropenic fever. Sure. Question about, you know, who's at highest risk? I mean, just in your observations and the studies you've done, these are all really sick patients, but who's at particularly high risk? Patients with high tumor mass and older patients are particularly vulnerable to develop any of these severe toxicities. And where do you think the your field is going in terms of... Uh, improving safety and decreasing toxicity? Well, I think in all cellular therapies, the, you know, and actually, you know, as an oncologist or in physicians, our goal is to give patients the longest life with the best quality of life with the minimum treatment necessary. So we are trying to reduce the burden of toxicity. In transplant, we're trying to do outpatient. We have actually a program of siltuximab to reduce symptom burden try to enhance recovery of, uh, of neutrophils. In cellular therapy, is the same thing. We're trying to mitigate toxicity by preemptive use of tocilizumab or IL-6 blockade, preemptive use of steroids. Eventually, you remember, with CIS, you know, as we talk about the analogy with cars, these are the Model Ts, okay? Mm-hmm. In five years, we're going to have Teslas that patients are, you know, they're really, they're going to be designed to be extremely effective against tumors, but very little toxicity. Would you predict, if people talk about off-the-shelf CAR-Ts, again, your own prediction, will they be more toxic, less toxic? I believe they're going to probably be less toxic because they'll be designed to be less toxic. We're not talking about financial toxicity. That's a whole other area because they probably will be financially very toxic. But I think they'll be designed to be more effective and less toxic and more available to you know, the community in general. Yeah. Do you feel that they'll be moved moved up in the, uh, you know, in terms of our lines of therapy? Oh, I cannot imagine that they will not yeah. be. I mean, there's no, I mean, every effective treatment finds its way to frontline. Well, let me ask you, what are the things you're excited about with in terms of CAR-T therapy now? So I think, is that, you know, full disclosure, I'm a transplanter. Yeah. And I actually think that and I remember that, you know, the main, pr- most important cause of treatment failure after CAR T-cell is recurrence of the disease. Mm-hmm. I think that CAR T-cells and high-dose therapy have a very important role in that combining 
these effective therapies will result in a larger fraction of patients achieving long-term disease control. I'm very excited seeing the CAR-Ts for myeloma. I think that's the dawn of a new era for myeloma therapy. I think you know it will show that high-dose therapy combined with cellular therapy will actually be a very effective strategy for patients, not only with high-risk disease, but with standard disease. So, so by the way, I have to say this is one of the first times that I have heard ab- about the combination. Usually it's people talking about should they, go to, should they be transplanted or should they have CAR-T? So you're actually saying to do both. I always, they, I mean, to me, I mean, I do not know of any cancer that we have successfully treated where we have not given our best treatments up front. Yep. So to not give our one of our best treatments for myeloma, which is high dose melphalan, up front, we makes you know, just intuitively does not make sense to me. So, and a final question, and I think we've touched it already, but but in terms of survivorship, yeah. when patients have been through CAR T and and come out the other end, and and God willing, are doing well, how is quality of life? How do patients reflect back on that whole experience, both from the physical point of view and even the and the emotional point of view too? I mean, patients who've had serious toxicities, you know, generally, I mean, many of them don't. Their families remember. Yes. They might not remember the neurotoxicities. They remember the anxiety of trying to get to the CAR T cell. And, you know, and I think we all have to be attuned that all of our patients, CAR T cell or not, are all at risk for post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, yes. we, we are, you know, I always try to avoid the war analogy in our patients with cancer, but it is. I mean, these patients went through a traumatic experience. They now are alive without disease. Most of them with very good quality of life, but with this concern that the shoe's gonna drop again. The large cell lymphoma data, the fact that, you know, what we saw today in the meeting that the Leukemia Lymphoma Society put in New York, that Dr. Braunschweig showed the two-year follow-up data for the AxiCell data, I mean, that curve's not dropping. So, I mean, I think there is good room for hope that particularly if you went through that first year, long-term disease control with good quality of life should be what you get. Yeah, which is, uh, which is what we how, want. How exciting. Yes. It's wonderful. Anyways, I want to say what a wonderful uh, experience has been for me getting to hear about this. I want to thank this is Dr. Sergio Giraltz, who's with us, who is from Memorial Sloan Kettering. Sergio, thanks again. Thank you very much, Ken, and thanks for the Leukemia Lymphoma Society for all the support of our patients and their families. It is now my pleasure to welcome Dr. Gunjan Shah, who's with the Adult Bone Marrow Transplant Service and Center for Health Policy and Outcomes at Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York. Thank you for joining us, Gunjan. Thank you for having me. So, you know, I was looking at the title of what you do and and the division you work in, and the bone marrow transplant department at Sloan Kettering, obviously, I know well because it's it's very well known and and excellent, but tell us more about the Center for Health Policy and Outcomes. Yeah, so it's a center that's headed by Dr. Peter Bach and have a lot of both the clinical physicians and investigators under it and a lot of the PhD level and scientists behind it to look at both costs of care on a per patient level, on a a big database level, kind of a lot of over a, a big spectrum of care. A difficult question, or at least as I as I look at it, when we're thinking about the issue of value, okay, firstly, what does value mean in healthcare? 
And how do you come up with a value for healthcare? Yeah, so the first sort of part of all this is really to set what, what value is. And the way that I kind of look at it is it's a combination between the clinical outcomes that we all try to improve and are so used to trying to improve with clinical trials and new uh, innovations. And then the second part of it of sort of the logistics side, the patient reported outcome side, and then kind of putting it all together with the cost and overall effectiveness and making it partly, you know, has been done into these ratios of comparing cost and effectiveness and putting it together into one number, but also trying to take into account how patients feel and have it be a little bit broader. So again, these may be, may be difficult questions or maybe not, but when we look, for example, at the cost effectiveness, the value of adjuvant therapy, mm-hmm. and then the value of some of the more advanced therapies, targeted therapies, what, what are your sort of observations in general? Yeah, so I think a lot of it for value is really dependent on the patient benefit part of it. And so that's why we think including patient reported outcomes into a lot of the newer clinical trials and newer, even standard of care, but kind of being able to take patients and how they feel and their perceptions of being on treatment into account really seems to impact what we think of as value and and increasing their clinical effectiveness and survival and all of these things also. All right, so let's dive right into to CAR-T therapy. I've heard numbers thrown around, but what does it cost to treat a patient with CAR-T? Yeah, so in the two commercially approved products currently, they range between 375000 and $475,000. One of the products has a, a sort of caveat of if you don't respond to it within the first month and, or sort of at your first restaging, then you don't actually pay for the product cost, which is something you know more called response-based pricing. And that doesn't include everywhere, but it's sort of a model that's that's different than what we're used to sort of seeing. The other products and the other indication with the lymphoma indications for both products are really much more on a flat dose of price. And so those are really much more traditionally priced in terms of how a patient would get them through their insurance. So that's actually for the drug. For the drug itself. How about the whole, uh, their care? And so that's what's not quite known yet and what some of my research is on in trying to sort of come up with that number is in terms of do you include the collection cost in it? Do you include 30 days afterwards? Do you include 100 days afterwards? In the transplant world, a lot of this was sort of done in the early 90s to try to come up with a bundle payment that a lot of hospitals and organizations sort of use now to to be paid for. And I think probably in the long run, CAR T-cell therapy will go the same way. It's just that we don't know what those numbers are quite yet. Do you have a guess? So I think it's less than what everyone was initially thinking. That you know, initially the concern was that it was going to be you know three four hundred thousand dollars for the product, and then another three or four hundred thousand dollars to take care of the yep. patient. Mm-hmm. And what it looks like from sort of the preliminary work that we've done is that it's probably really much more geared towards how many days you're in the hospital, how many days you're in the intensive care unit. That those are really the big places that you have cost, especially early on. And so that it's really much more about if you can mitigate the toxicities of these treatments, that you really change the impact of, of how much we're actually spending on taking care of these patients outside of the drug cost. So it makes me think about bone marrow transplant. When we went to stem cell mm-hmm. and with some of the newer advances, I mean, some patients are in theory treated as outpatients. Correct. So you're saying it's those variables that actually will change the cost. Correct. And so and so, even now, the tisogenoglucil can be given as an outpatient for the lymphoma indication. Um, and so that automatically sort of changes your amount of time, you know, if you're only admitted for if you get toxicities, you know, how many days you're on the outpatient side, how many days you're on the inpatient side, really does change the cost of taking care yeah, of the which, which makes sense, and it's very, it's very helpful to hear about it, and it puts it in perspective. 
you get a sense of now how many patients are treated with CAR-T? And where I'm going with that is really to ask you, what do you project or what do you think will be the entire cost to us in the United States? Yeah, and I think, you know, we expect there to be, you know, hundreds of patients treated each year across the, the country and across the world. And so when we look from sort of a U.S. global kind of healthcare health payer sort of perspective, it really partly depends on what a lot of the decisions are. Medicare reimbursements, since a lot of these patients are older, how the commercial insurance companies discover it, whether they're going to follow the Medicare rules or whether they're going to, you know, have their own version of bundles or other things. So, so it's hard to, it's, it sounds like it's hard to estimate. Yeah. Are we going to go broke? I don't think so. I mean, I think that there is a way of doing this where we figure out how to treat the toxicities and the side effects and potentially, you know, whichever things we can do as outpatient. I think there is a way to use the healthcare system currently so that we wouldn't go broke and that we really come up with a way to use this very effective, very innovative therapy, but figure out, you know, who is the right person for it, who, you know, shouldn't really be getting these. You know, if you have a really poor performance status, if you're going to be in the hospital for months and months at a time, are you really the right person to do this? And I think some of picking those things and then being able to sort of increase access, increase the better outcomes, decrease the toxicity, really allows, when you look at it on a broader healthcare perspective, everyone that can get treated to get treated without making the healthcare system go broke. What are the, the policies now and the responses of payers, including Medicare and Medicaid and, and private insurers? Yeah, so right now we're waiting sort of for the Medicare answer to this of how they're going to try to adjust it. It does seem like from the their initial sort of asks for comments and the thoughts on whether to include patient reported outcomes or not as part of being required for payment, which we don't think should happen currently since it's just not quite at prime time yet, but we do think they're important, but that the overarching Medicare part of this really comes in that they are trying to figure out how to best reimburse the organizations and hospitals that are using this product with ways of trying to say, you know, do we take the full cost and use a different multiplier or go up on that multiplier? Because what it seems like they're trying to do, which is very reasonable, is is not make a decision just for CAR T-cells, but sort of how they approach every new therapy that's going to come out mm-hmm. in this sort of similar vein of cellular therapies, but also broadly in general, that every expensive drug, they kind of run into this problem. Yeah. And yeah. so how do you take all of these new innovations and not go broke by trying right. to give people access to so them? So do you have any suggestions <laughs> on if you were... Uh, if you were in charge, it'd be, again, yeah. very uh, uh, difficult things to think through, but go very, ahead. Very difficult to kind of think through. I do think that, you know, a lot of it has to really do with the things that we can control. And so, you know, over time, are we going to be able to see differences in the actual cost of the product? Hopefully. I think that has to be part of it. I think exploring some of these pricing schemes of either, you know, what they call sort of value-based or response-based is probably reasonable. I do think that what some of the Medicare adjustments that they're trying to make on cost to charges and hospitals sort of charging double and triple the price to be able to get back to the cost that they actually are incurring, I think changing some of those multiplier factors that Medicare is taking in, uh, is thinking about taking into account, I think would be really helpful in, in being able to do that. Yeah. Um, uh, thank you, because I have to say, I've, I've had a hard time thinking through these. More generally, is there a forecast, either, you know, you, your group, other people you've talked to, uh, about what will happen with, with the cost of the product itself, the, the drugs? 
Yeah, I mean, I think over time, you know, most products go down in the sense that there's always the next version, there's always, you know, improvements that can be made. Obviously, you know, innovation and, you know, research and development are all important things and, and nobody wants to stifle those, but there does have to be some accounting that you can't have, you know, excessive amounts of cost with then trying to take care of an entire population and sort of fitting all of that in. Yeah. Are, are there actual, when you when you again look at value, benefit and cost being wrapped into that, are there values that are sort of assigned to therapies, actual numbers? Yeah. So uh, the original sort of quality adjusted life years and the original sort of metrics that came from this really came from, the, from dialysis when it started and sort of setting this $50,000 per quality adjusted life year as sort of the benchmark. Other countries tend to use... Um, some portion of their GDP or something like that to set their number since it, obviously just converting you know between currencies doesn't really make sense for other countries some of it does end up being you know in the US are we okay with a hundred thousand dollars are we okay with in cancer care a little bit higher than that you know and some of it really comes down to sort of societal values but also at the same time taking into account how many people there are that have to get treated so I want to dive down a little bit deeper on this one just because it's all new information for me but Looking at dialysis, what is an amount per a year? And then let's talk a little bit about our, our therapies. Yeah, so the $50,000 per quality adjusted life year really came from the original calculations that were done with dialysis. So mm -hmm. that's where that number first came from. And so what some of the analyses that have been done by various groups around the country now, mostly by modeling of taking the clinical trial data that's been available, of taking some of the uh, comparisons. And the big part of this that gets lost sometimes is everything is really dependent on what you're comparing it to. So the way that cost effectiveness works is that it's really your new treatment versus some old treatment. Mm -hmm. And so the problem with CAR T cells is that in most cases, what you pick as your old treatment that you're comparing it to is actually the more controversial part of all of it. Because for lymphoma, most patients are either that they can't get an autologous transplant because they're not responding or going into remission. So you're comparing it to salvage therapy, but you already know in that setting that salvage therapy is not working. That's Correct. why they're getting the CAR T cell. Yeah. So comparing the amount of life years you're going to get from salvage therapy to the amount of years you're getting from CAR T cell therapy is not really a valid comparison. Okay. And sort of similarly in the on the ALL side, the things that you can compare it to are things that most people have already had by the time you're talking about CAR T cells. So, so they've had a transplant? So they've had a transplant. And so one of the things that we can sometimes do is, is is try to do some comparisons like that of portions of patients of if they got this versus that kind of and do these analyses but also you know that some of it becomes more difficult in terms of saying we're okay with it on the transplant side but all of a sudden when you go look at it on the CAR T cell side it becomes a big discussion and and, and not that it's not that it shouldn't be but you have to sort of look into, they can't do the other therapies that we already commonly accept. Mm -hmm. And so are we okay with the little bit higher of that number and what that number and where everyone's kind of cut off is called. And that's something that they call willingness to pay for a society. And that's much mm -hmm. more, a little bit more of a societal kind of discussion that happens mm -hmm. as opposed to a, a flat cutoff. Yeah. If dialysis is, again, we use that ratio of 50,000 per year, even roughly, what, what is it for CAR T? Yeah, so the analyses that have been done in the modeling have shown it from anywhere between this sort of $50,000, $60,000 range to three dollars or $400,000 range. And the big distinction in all of it is really the thing that changes it most is really what your response rate is. And mm -hmm. so as we get better and better 
products and next generation ones and things that last longer and work longer, that ratio gets better. And, and that's true for all therapies, but particularly for the CAR T-cell therapy, since we know that these are all the first generations mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. commercial products and that right, we expect right. to get better over time. Yeah, yeah. Makes me think about the targeted therapies that we use, some of which, I mean, which come out as a static drug, a drug, yeah. which actually probably won't, get, it may not get that much better. <laughs> Correct. Uh, but CAR-T obviously has so much potential. So a last question, a very general one, but does the clinical benefit of CAR-T therapy outweigh the cost associated? What, what's your What's your view? Yeah, I, I do think it does to a degree. I think that there are a lot of patients who, you know, run into relapsing after transplants, re, you know, not responding enough to get a transplant or have these sort of long-term survivals from whatever therapy we can get them. And so I do think that the, we, we know that there is a great clinical benefit from the CAR T-cell therapy. And the big question and where the value and cost and all this really comes into it is how do we safely give it to patients, have enough patients have access, but really be able to do it in a way that as many people as possible can really get treated within the current healthcare system. Yeah. Anyways, I want to thank you uh, <laughs> thank for you. for joining us. I'm Dr. Ken Miller, and we were just talking with Dr. Gunjan Shah, who is from the Adult Bone Marrow Transplant Service and the Center for Health Policy and Outcomes at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Thank you for having me. Thank you. For a listing of our continuing education activities, including continuing education webinars and publications on CAR-T cell therapy and all other healthcare professional resources, please visit www.lls.org forward slash CE. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.